you stood directly before God on his throne, do you think it would go well for you? How you answer this depends on your view of God. You have a low view of God, a low view of God's standards, a low view of God's power, a low view of God's majesty, then you'll likely think that you'll be just fine if you stood before him. But if you have a high view of God, you'll answer differently. You'll wonder how any immortal, immortal being could stand before the holy and immortal God and be okay. Well, the Bible offers several examples of people who approach God on their own terms and of people who stand before God in their own sin. And spoiler alert, it doesn't go well. There's a Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Men conspire their way to build themselves up to God. And did it go well? No, it didn't. There's Isaiah. Isaiah gets a vision of God's throne room. He describes it in Isaiah chapter 6. And how does it go for him? Isaiah is terrified. He says, Behold, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Then there's Peter. Peter witnesses Jesus, God the Son, in the flesh. He witnesses Jesus speak and calm the storm. In the presence of the divine, Peter also trembles. And the beginning of Leviticus chapter 16 reminds us of two more people who approached God on their own terms. Nadab and Abihu. They drew near to God in their own way, and they died. I know so far this isn't shaping out to be a very uplifting sermon. <laughs> so the question is, is there a way to stand directly before God on his throne and live? Well, all of Leviticus, and especially chapter 16, begins to answer that. Now, the problem stems back farther than Nadab and Abihu. It stems back all the way to the beginning. God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden after they rebelled against him. He cast them east of the Garden of Eden. And do you remember what he placed outside of the Garden of Eden? It's two cherubim and a flaming sword. This communicates to them that if anyone attempts to come back in, the sword will fall upon them. So in the rest of the book of Genesis, we see a longing for Eden. By the end of the book of Exodus, we see that God sets up a mini renewed Garden of Eden, the tabernacle. And now in Leviticus, God makes a way for his people to enter this new renewed Eden. But the people in Leviticus can't enter the tabernacle casually, or else the sword will fall upon them, like it did for Nadab and Abihu. And what's more, the people, their sin defiles this new and renewed Eden. It gets it dirty. So if left unaddressed, God will depart from them. So God has given them sacrifices. He's given them priests. He's given them instructions to resolve all the problems like these. But in Leviticus 16, God sets one day a year apart from all the others. This day addresses all the sin that the ongoing system of sacrifices didn't address. You could call this day the ultimate spring cleaning day. The Bible calls it the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. Leviticus chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement is here to tell us that this is the main point of our time. 
that because God has graciously provided cleansing for his dwelling place and atonement for his people, we can draw near to him with full confidence. Because God has graciously provided cleansing for his dwelling place and atonement for his people, we can draw near to him with full confidence. Now, our time in Leviticus 16 will look will look and feel different from the other sermons in Leviticus, in part because we're only looking at one chapter today and not many. But also, we want to see, we want to slow down and focus just on this chapter because Leviticus 16 is really the centerpiece of the book. And you can argue it's even the centerpiece of the whole first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch, the Torah. So Leviticus 16 is really important. So here's the plan for today. We're going to read and narrate this chapter. Then we'll summarize it. And finally, we'll look ahead at what is still missing from Leviticus 16. So as we do this, as we're in Leviticus 16, may God press upon us and help us to appreciate afresh our atonement in Christ. That because Jesus died to pay for our sins, because Jesus died to ransom us from the penalty of our sins, now we are at one with God. We have atonement. So as a result of today, my prayer is that we wouldn't take this precious gift for granted. And we would press on to stay close to our God and Savior. So if you haven't turned there yet, turn to Leviticus 16. You'll find it on page 95. If you're looking at the Bible, it looks like this. Leviticus chapter 16. And we're going to read it paragraph by paragraph. So we'll just kind of narrate it along the way. This will be the main thing we do this morning. If you're taking notes, be ready for seven stops along our journey, which reflects the seven paragraphs of this chapter. So Leviticus 16 will begin with verse 1. <clears throat> the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coats and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Remember that cr crucial to understanding the book of Leviticus is that the book of Leviticus is part of a bigger story or a bigger narrative. Verses 1 to 2 of this chapter remind us of this. God gave these instructions about the Day of Atonement on the very same day that Nadab and Abihu died. So placing Leviticus within the bigger story uh, is, helps us to remember that Leviticus is first a resolution to a problem. Leviticus is not just this isolated and set apart set of rules. It's a resolution to a problem. So God's warning to Aaron in verse 2 could shed light on what Nadab and Abihu did. Nadab and Abihu likely entered the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the tabernacle. They did this without God's permission. They did this without God's instruction. And so you could, could you imagine how Aaron is hearing these instructions in Leviticus 16? 
Perhaps he's thinking, you know, I would think if I was him, that the last time someone tried to go into the Holy of Holies, it was my own sons. And when they did it, they died. And so in part of Leviticus 16 is how the priests can enter the Holy of Holies and live. So the Holy of Holies, just a little bit of background and explanation. The Holy of Holies is a physical representation of God's throne room. So in heaven, God sits enthroned above the cherubim. In the holy place, God shows up in the cloud above the mercy seat. The mercy seat rests between two cherubim, or angel-like figures. The mercy seat is where atonement is made and blood will be sprinkled. The mercy seat covers the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contains God's law. So all of this communicates that God rules his people by his word. So this is his throne room, right? And his word is at the center of his throne room. God rules his people by his word. But God's people disobey God's word, and thus they rebel against God's rule. So Aaron will sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to pay for their sin, to pay for their violation against God's law. And this will make people at one with God again. It will give them atonement. Now Aaron's, get, uh, Aaron's told to bring certain kinds of animals into the Holy of Holies. We'll get more details about them soon. But before Aaron makes any kind of sacrifice, Aaron has to dress the part. He has to put on holy linens. Now, Aaron wears different clothes for the Day of Atonement than he wears for his normal work. And ironically, his normal attire is anything but normal. Aaron's normal clothes are very colorful, they're very detailed. It drew attention to the importance of what he did. He represented the people before God. But the clothes he wears on this day, the clothes he wears on the Day of Atonement, are plain. One commentator observes that on most days, Aaron looks like a king. On this day, Aaron looks more like a servant. This is a special reminder to Aaron, a reminder to everybody else in the camp, that attention belongs to no one else besides the Lord. It's similar to how heaven is described in the Bible also. Every time heaven is described, every time it's, the Bible describes the people that are there, the Bible does not describe a fashion show with people wearing Gucci and Louis Vuitton. <laughs> the Bible describes angels and saints in similar attire as the priest on the Day of Atonement. That's because in heaven, like on the Day of Atonement, attention belongs to the Lord. The Lord alone. So let's go to the next paragraph, verses 6 to 10. It says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. For the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to, to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. All right. Has anybody here ever gotten into a disagreement or an argument with another person? <laughs> Show of hands. If you are not raising your hand, I do not believe you. <laughs> After that happens, it's good to try to resolve a disagreement. It's good to try to make amends after a dispute. 
But if you've ever done that, if you've ever had even a good follow-up conversation with the person you've got an argument with, even if you clear the air for the most part, don't you feel that sometimes there's still a tension in the relationship? I maybe you can resonate with me with that. Uh, that's a little like what happens throughout the Day of Atonement. It's a glorious day for God's people. There's huge progress. But there are little moments along the way. Little moments that should make them feel like there's some unresolved tension. One of them is in verse 6. In verse 6, Aaron, the high priest, he has to make atonement for himself. And he has to make atonement for his household. And so the little bit of tension that might be like a pebble in their shoe, they could wonder, can guys like Aaron ever really do what needs to be done for us? Someone who needs atonement for himself. We're just going to have to let that tension rest for a little while. Now, besides a bowl for Aaron and his family, God tells Aaron to get two goats ready. These goats will have two different fates. In fact, these goats will head in two different directions, but both of these goats will stand in the place of God's people. One goat will head inside of the tabernacle. What this goat will enter the Holy of Holies. It'll go through the veil that blocks the Holy of Holies, the veil upon which two cherubim are sown. But this goat will only be able to go through the Holy of Holies because the sword falls upon it, like the sword that guards Eden. Now the other goat, it says, will be cast out into the wilderness. It says, cast out to Azazel. Now, there's no consensus, really, on exactly what Azazel refers to. It literally means a region that is cut off. What is clear is that this other goat carries the sin and uncleanness of Israel. It carries it away from God's king. It carries it to the place of wilderness. It carries it to the realm of death. It carries it to the place outside of God's presence, the place outside of God's protection the place outside of God's provision. So next paragraph, 11 to 14. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So Aaron finally gets to go in, inside the tabernacle, the place where God dwells. And first he's going to go all the way in, to the innermost parts. We talked about it already, the Holy of Holies. Aaron will cleanse the tabernacle from the inside out, from the deepest parts back out. Now, did you spot what Aaron has to do when he goes into the Holy of Holies? When he goes all the way in, he has to make smoke or a cloud that covers the Ark of the Covenant. This is another reminder that the Holy of Holies is a physical representation of God's throne room. The Bible says repeatedly that God's throne is surrounded by clouds. But also notice the purpose. 
Notice why Aaron has to do this. The end of verse 13. The cloud is meant to cover the mercy seat so that Aaron doesn't die. So that he doesn't die. I mean, talk about unresolved tension. So here's the deal. Only one day a year can someone go into the Holy of Holies, this part of the town. And only one guy from all of Israel can go on this one day of the, of the year. So on this one day, this one guy can't even look at the ark. And it makes us appreciate, it should make us appreciate so much more what God has done for us in Christ. First John chapter 3 says that we will see Jesus as he is. No veil, no smoke. Next paragraph, starting in verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells, them, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. It's going to add verse 20 in there too. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, for the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall present the live goat. So here's Aaron, the high priest, continues to make his way outward. He's went all the way in first, and now he's heading back out. He cleans the holy of holies. Then he cleans the room right outside of it, the holy place. Then he cleans what's right outside of that, which is the altar. So the instructions repeatedly say that he makes atonement for every one of these errands. Now, this might be confusing because I don't know if you wonder, but I wondered this. How does a room or a piece of furniture need atonement? You might think that your coffee table needs atonement. Maybe you've jammed your toe on it. Maybe you've tripped over it. It's caused you pain. It's caused you to scream expletives. I hope not, but maybe. This is not what we're talking about, though. It's not that these areas were guilty of committing sin or uncleanness. Look at verse 16. It's the uncleanness and sin of the people that defile these holy areas and objects. So you think about what happens throughout the year. Uh, when, whenever the Israelites would make sacrifices for their sin, what would happen is that the animal's blood gets sprinkled on the altar and sprinkled on the holy place. And so the people's guilt gets transferred to the animal that is sacrificed. And when their blood gets sprinkled on these objects and these places, these places and these objects are thus defiled by the people's guilt. So these places and objects need to be cleaned. And so far, in the chapter, Aaron has made atonement for himself, he's made atonement for his house, and he's made atonement for the tabernacle from the inside out. But he hasn't yet made atonement for all the people. And that's where we head next, starting in verse 21. 
And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all of the iniquities of the people of Israel, and all their transgressions, and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness, by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on himself to a remote area, and, it's, and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. One word repeats several times in this paragraph. It's the word all. One word that gives a hint that there has been sin that has gone unaddressed in Israel. It talks about all iniquities, all transgressions, all sin. All the guilt and all the uncleanness that results from their sin is now physically removed from the camp. Now again, you might wonder like I did. I thought people made sacrifices for their sin throughout the year. That they did it when they needed it. So what's up with this? Well, analogy for you. Talk about cleaning. Do you clean every corner and crevice of your house every time you clean? I don't. So inevitably, there will be areas that you neglect, uh, like the area that's the little crevice between your refrigerator and the wall. I don't clean that every week. <laughs> so for Israel, there's no way every person in the camp made all the sacrifices that they should have. And even for the people who made sacrifices, there's no way that they addressed every one of their sins. And so here we have two goats for all the sins of the people. Again, both of these goats stand in their place, both the goat that dies and the goat that is cast out. One goat carries them into the divine presence through sacrifice. The other goat carries away their sin. One goat goes to the fountain of life. The other goat goes to the realm of death. Now, help a little bit of background explaining this. Turn to Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. You'll just have to flip a few pages back. Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. It's on page 74. This is a seminal passage in the Old Testament. Really, no other place does the Lord so clearly and so succinctly state his name and state his character. Exodus 34, 6 to 7. A little background on what's going on with these two goats. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So we've talked a lot about tension so far in this sermon, and there's a tension in these verses too. How does God forgive and yet not clear the guilty? How does God forgive sin and yet not clear those who are guilty of sin? He can't shove sin in the closet. He can't sweep guilt under the rug. That won't take it away. What God has to do is he has to transfer that guilt to something else. There must be a substitute. Something must take the blame like a scapegoat. That's the only way sin can be atoned for, is if there is a substitute. But there's still a tension that remains from Leviticus 16. 
can the guilt of people really be transferred to an animal? Can an animal really stand as a substitute for a person? We'll leave that tension there. Let's go to the next paragraph, verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on and went and when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in the holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for all the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This paragraph should remind us of how much sin still affects them. Even in the process of removing sin, people get unclean. Aaron has to clean himself. The guy who carried the goat away has to clean himself. They have to rightly dispose of the animal sacrifices, and the people who dispose of them have to clean themselves. Cleanness was short-lived. And parents, I'm sure it would frustrate you if you worked very hard to give your daughter a bath, and then right after that, she went out and rolled in the mud. If only there was a bath to end all baths. If only there was a cleansing that wouldn't be undone, that wouldn't be so short-lived. If only God's people could be permanently clean. We'll have to leave that tension there. Let's go to the next paragraph, verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who was anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute for forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in a year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. So the chapter closes with a summary, and it closes with instructions for the rest of the people. So the first day of atonement inaugurated an annual day of atonement. And since Israel operates on a lunar calendar, this would happen roughly around October. So God marks this off as the most important day of the year. Literally, it's a Sabbath of Sabbaths. And just like the sacrifices of chapters 1 to 7, they don't promote passive participation of people. Neither does the Day of Atonement. Yes, people don't contribute anything to their forgiveness of sins, but neither should they go about casually, like ordinary business, while the priest is doing all the work. So not only does God instruct them to put work away, he tells them to afflict themselves. Other places in the Bible use this verb in connection with fasting, in connection with self-examination, in connection with prayer. God calls his people beyond going through the motions. 
God charges them to consider the meaning behind everything that's going on this day. God tells them to put away distractions. God tells them to prepare themselves. God tells them to engage as the events are unfolding. And perhaps one way they can do that, the only thing probably they would see is the goat that passes them by that's being led out into the wilderness. Everything else is done at the tabernacle. So think about them just considering the significance behind this goat, watching as it passes by and walking through. Thinking to themselves as they should. What's happening to that goat? Should have happened to me. And so here, the Israelites, they should humble themselves on the day of atonement. Humble themselves under the holiness of God, and they should thank God for his forgiveness. Now, we don't get same instructions for us in the new covenant, at least exactly. But for us, we should similarly prepare every time we come together for worship. We should prepare. We should focus. We should humble ourselves. We should thoughtfully engage, not just go through the motions when we come together to worship God as his people. And just one last note on verses 29 to 34, the last paragraph. To whom does this atonement apply? Who is included? Is the sacrifice of these two goats for all people everywhere? No, they are for a particular people. Look at the end of verse 33. They are for the people of the assembly. Atonement was for all those who belonged to the people of God, those who belonged to the covenant community. So similarly, Jesus sacrificed himself to pay for sin. But if you don't belong to the people of God, my friend, your sins aren't paid for. You are facing the same outcomes as the goats face in the story. The outcome of death, the outcome of banishment from God's presence. So the crucial question is, what does it take to belong to the people of God? Well, it takes faith in God's Son. It takes trust in Jesus as the one who bore the penalty that our sins deserve. It takes trust in Jesus as the one who carries our sin far away like that goat did. We trust in Jesus as the one who brings atonement for us, who brings us peacefully to God's presence. And as we trust in Christ, we gratefully follow Christ among his people. And this is the life that God intends for you. So there it is. There's the narration. That's the bulk of our time, as I promised. There's just two more quick things, okay? We've come to the other side of this chapter, and I hate to leave it just here. So let's take a look back at what we explored. Let's try to summarize it. Just with one question. What did the Day of Atonement accomplish? We should be able to sum it up in this way. What did the Day of Atonement accomplish? Well, at least three outcomes. Three outcomes. Outcome A, it cleansed God's house. It cleansed God's house. The tabernacle was like God setting up camp where the people set up camp. But unclean and sinful people polluted God's clean and holy house. So for them to stay close to God and for God to stay close to them, God's dwelling place must be cleansed. So the Day of Atonement cleansed God's house. Outcome B, the Day of Atonement cleansed God's people. Cleansed God's people. Like we said, this day atoned for sin that hadn't been remedied throughout the year. It addressed not just some of God's people, but all of God's people. It addressed not just some of their sin, but all of their sin. Outcome C, the Day of Atonement brought them back into God's presence. Brought them back into God's presence. Remember, this is the one day a year the priest could enter the Holy of Holies. And remember that the priest stands in place of all the people. He is anointed. He's set apart to do this. 
he enters the place that represents God's throne room in heaven. The priest goes through the veil that has the cherubim sewn onto it. And just like the cherubim that guarded Eden, and the priest can go through that veil only because a goat has the sword fall on it in the priest's place. And when the priest does this, it's like a reversal of when Adam and Eden were banished from the garden. They were banished east. The priests get to enter back west. They get to go the opposite direction. So it reminds us that God has this grand plan to restore and bring back people to himself. Now, one way we can rise above passive participation, one way we can not go through the motions, is again to prepare ourselves each week to prepare for Sunday morning. So you can get a good night's sleep, you can read the sermon passage beforehand, maybe turn off the TV a little earlier than normal. Uh, and the other way that we can not go through the motions on Sunday is not to let Sunday morning go to waste. So we walk away determined to reflect, determined to even talk about what we just heard from God's Word. Now, here's a little bit of guidance for you on how to do that today. Today, in light of Leviticus 16, at lunch or this afternoon at some point, read the, uh, the book of Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. I'll even do it with you uh, if you want to stay here. I've, I've got a little bit of time. So, Hebrews 9 and 10. Notice all the ways that it links back to Leviticus 16. Hebrews 9 and 10 is like God's own commentary on the Day of Atonement. Now, just real quick as we're looking ahead to where we are now, being in the New Covenant, I want you to turn to Hebrews 9 and 10. We won't read it, but I just want, to, want you to have it handy. It's on page 1005 in the Red Pew Bible. So we're just going to look ahead by answering one question. We've had all these little unresolved tension points throughout Leviticus 16, right? So let's try to address that tension. What's still unresolved after the Day of Atonement? Well, the Day of Atonement is the only day of the year where only one guy gets access to God's presence. Seems to be like they're, we're waiting for more still. Well, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, says that through Jesus, the true anointed one, anyone who believes in him can draw near to God at any time. Anyone at any time. Not just one guy. One guy from Israel and one day of the year. What's still unresolved? So the one day that one guy could come into God's presence, this guy had to first sacrifice for his own sin. So Hebrews 7.27 says that Jesus has no need to sacrifice for his own sin. Like the other priests, Jesus has no sin to sacrifice for. What's still unresolved? On the one day a year that one guy got access to God's presence, it was just a representation of heaven. It wasn't heaven itself. But Hebrews 9, verse 24, says that Christ has entered not into holy places made by hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Aaron cleansed just the representation of the place where God dwells. Jesus will cleanse all the earth from all the ways that sin has affected it. You might remember Romans chapter 8, how creation groans and longs. Christ will make all things new. What still remains unresolved? Well, the one day a year that one guy could come into God's presence, he got in by sacrificing a bull and a goat. 
Hebrews 9.25 says that Jesus entered by sacrificing himself. Himself. So Jesus is the priest who represents us and lays down his life for us. What remains unresolved? The one day a year that one guy could come into God's presence to make atonement for sin? Well, guess what? He had to do that every single year. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says that this is because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so here is the sinless Son of God. His sacrifice is infinitely precious. Therefore, Hebrews 10 verse 14 says that by a single sacrifice, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. Not every year, once for all. So what should we do? What should we do now that Christ has resolved all this tension from the Day of Atonement? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Hebrews 10 verses 22 to 25 actually applies it for us. If you're struggling with how to apply the Bible, well, sometimes the Bible actually applies it for us. Pay attention. It tells us what we should do. In light of what Christ has done for us, the tension he's resolved, we should confidently draw near to God with assurance that Christ has cleansed us. Draw near to God with confidence. What should we do in light of this? Well, we should hold on to our hope in God amidst suffering. The Hebrews that this book is written to were in the midst of suffering. So if God has secured our place with him for eternity, then we can trust God when it comes and it's tough in the temporary. What should we do in light of the tension that Christ has resolved from the day of atonement? Well, lastly, we should follow Christ together. Follow Christ together with love and good works. The one who saved us from the guilt and penalty of our sin, he will soon return to save us from the presence of our sin. And until then, we need one another. We need one another to follow our great high priest, to represent his love, represent him with good works. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you that there that we who belong to you don't have to wonder, don't have to worry that there's some sin that's snuck by, that's unaccounted for and unpaid for. Lord Jesus, thank you that you paid it all. And as we sang earlier, that means all to you we owe. So help us to rest with assurance that you have made atonement for all of our sin. And to use that rest to draw confidently to God, knowing that you hear us, that we have access to God's throne. But Lord, also, that since you have paid it all, help us to hold on to hope that you will hold on to us. You have secured our place for eternity. You will watch over us. God, help us to do this together. Because there are so many things that tug at us and seek to pull us away. So help us to continue to follow you as we trust you have cleansed us. Help us to follow you as your representatives in the world. And to be holy as you.
you so much.